0: The following is a recording of Pastor Doug Landrum of Grace Bible Church preaching a sermon on Galatians 5, 15-22 on March 21, 2021. If, uh, if you're in our house, um, well, really over the last uh, year, for some reason we've watched The Patriot about 400 times. Ashley and I are suckers for war movies. And uh, a war movie that has been played in our house probably more than any other is The Patriot. And uh, that's, of course, the story of the American Revolution with the colonial militia led by Benjamin Martin against the vaunted redcoats led by General uh, Cornwallis. And so perhaps you've seen the movie. And, of course, the main storyline or the main plot of the movie is American victory and freedom against seemingly insurmountable odds. But there's a subplot in the movie about the individual freedom of this slave named Occam. If you've seen the movie, you know that there's this enlistment scene where this older gentleman shows up, and uh, he says, I'm not going to be able to fight, but I'll sign up my slave in my stead who's going to fight. Well, that slave was Occam. Occam was not very well received in the beginning, pretty much by everybody, but especially by this guy named Donald Logue. If you've seen the movie, you immediately know that character who made it sort of his sport, his aim, to remind Occam of his inferior slave status. But Occam's status was set to change. By an order that came through, if a slave served in the Continental Army for 12 months, he was to be set free. And the entire week while I was preparing this, I could not get that scene out of my mind where Occam first hears that news. He's been serving for six months, and he says, six more months. And immediately Donald Logue comes in condescending fashion and says, what are you going to do with freedom? Well, we understand that question, don't we? Because we were slaves. And yet we are the people, if you're in Christ, who have been set free by faith in Christ, not because of our service, but because of His. And what I wanted to do, just to start off tonight, is to take a moment to celebrate how free we are in Christ. Christian, if you're a Christian in the room, and if you're not, then listen because this could be you, but if you're a Christian in the room, you have been set free from bondage to the law which condemned you in your sin. Over the past couple of weeks, we've read these verses, Galatians 4, 31-5-1. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave woman, but of the free woman. And listen to this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. And because we have been freed by having our sins forgiven from the bondage of the law which condemned us, we no longer are slaves to the fear of death. Which is why the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, Hebrews 2, 14-15, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and watch this, free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We are the people who are not afraid to die, because for us, death is gain. Why? Because the sting of death has been removed because our sin has been forgiven and there is no condemnation. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We're the people who know Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, He condemned sin in the flesh. He did what we could not do. We're the people who know what John eight thirty six really means when Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free, What? Indeed. Amen? We're free. If you are in Christ by faith, you are free. And immediately when you say that to yourselves, you can almost imagine the Judaizers coming over the Galatians' shoulders or maybe your own inner legalist saying, what are you going to do with freedom? If you've been saved by grace through faith apart from the works of the law, you know what you're going to do with freedom? You're going to be lawless. You're going to sin with license, aren't you? You ever heard that argument before? If you believe that salvation is by grace through faith, would well, you just do whatever you want. I'll never forget being in Millington when I served at, at Lucy. I, I was sharing the gospel out in a little community called Waverly, and there was this Mormon lady out there that I was sharing with, and she literally said this, if you say that salvation is totally by grace, people will do whatever they want. You ever heard that? By the way, that's not a new argument. They told Paul the same thing. When Paul preached the abundant grace of Christ in the Gospel, where he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, somebody said, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? May it never be, Paul says. Meganoito, a double negative. May it never be. Because I think here's what Paul's wanting to say to us. Listen, if your understanding of grace is that it sets you free to sin as you want, you haven't understood grace. If your understanding of freedom in Christ is, now I have license, you don't know what freedom is. Because Titus 2, 11 to 13 says, the grace of God has taught us to deny ungodliness. Paul would say this, if you know what it is to be condemned in your sin rightly, justly, you deserve it, and then you know what it is to be freed by the free grace of Christ so that you are not under condemnation, but you have been set free, that doesn't motivate you to sin freely. It motivates you to love fully. Let will say that again. The grace of God rightfully understood doesn't motivate you to sin freely. It motivates you to love fully, or else you haven't understood it. Amen? Now, listen to this. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, right before the passage that we're on tonight. He said, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, I want to tell you there the word, phrase, opportunity, or don't give your flesh an opportunity to gratify itself The idea is don't let your freedom be co-opted by your flesh and used against you. Don't let your flesh take the freedom that you have in Christ, turn it into a beachhead, and launch an attack against you. Don't do that. He says instead, love for the first time, and I want you to hear this, love for the first time because we actually can. Now pay attention there. Love for the first time serve one another in love because we actually can and maybe you're here thinking well what do you mean we actually can for the first time well remember the law and human effort under the law was never the answer to your flesh or to my flesh to our indwelling sin nature actually it's quite the contrary the judaizers were saying you need a little law to subdue your flesh to really get you in just add that to jesus Paul says, excuse me, do you know that the law actually didn't restrain sin, it provoked it? You remember we talked about this? Listen to Galatians three nineteen. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Now here's what that doesn't mean. Oh, well God gave us the law to kind of hold our transgressions in check. No, no, no. God gave us the law to show us how miserably awful we are Because when you mix my human flesh, indwelling sin nature, with the holy law of God, you know what you get? An explosion of sin. Because my flesh cannot submit itself. It just can't, Romans 8 says. So I had this picture in my mind this week when I was thinking of the law trying to restrain your indwelling sin nature. I mean, mine too, but yours. I had this picture of this big bull, and that's our sin nature, right? And then I had this picture of Knox who's thrown a lasso around the neck of the bull, and that's the law, all right? Now, the law's a lot better than Knox. But anyway, the point is, it's weak because if we said, all right, now Knox, control this bull with that lasso. Well, not only is he not going to be able to control the bull with the lasso, he's probably just going to make the bull more unruly and mad. What happens when you mix law with flesh is you get an explosion of sin, not because of the law, but because. I can't submit my flesh to God's standards. But when you have been set free in Christ, listen to this, and this is so key. When you've been set free in Christ and forgiven, God has given you a controlling influence that can actually subdue your flesh and actually lead you to love the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this quote. The Holy Spirit, whose restraining power is far more effective than, effective than the law's restraining power ever was, and who gives the believer both the desire and the power to refuse the right and choose, to, to refuse the wrong and choose the right, a thing which law was never able to do. The believer, therefore, is passed out of one control into another, from the control of a mere system of legal enactment into the control of a person, God the Holy Spirit. What the law couldn't do, the Holy Spirit does in you. And here's what's really interesting. Paul uses the same word for the Holy Spirit that he used for the law back in Galatians 3.24. The, the word pedagogue. Pedagogue. Now listen to what he said about the law in Galatians 3.24. Therefore the law has become our pedagogue, our tutor, our guardian, our caretaker to do what? To lead us to Christ. But now that you're in Christ, look what he says. If you are led, that's the word pedagogue. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. you got a new caretaker. you got a new guardian. you got a new tutor. you got somebody else over you. And guess what? This guardian can actually lead you into freedom. You know, people talk about freedom a lot, don't they? Here's what they mean by freedom. I can do whatever I want. That's what they mean by freedom. Human autonomy means freedom. Do you know you're not free if the only thing you can choose is sin? You're not free. You're a slave. Oh, I'm free because I can do whatever I want. Well, no, no, no. The only thing you can do is sin. Real freedom comes when you come to Christ and he gives you the capacity to see the difference and to choose the right. One commentator put it like this, the will of the person has been liberated from the enslavement of, to sin, which it experienced before salvation, and watch this, and is free now to choose the right and refuse the wrong. That's real freedom. Real freedom is being able to do what you want because you have new desires, and what you want is the right thing. That's real freedom. Real freedom is being able to do whatever you, what, what you want and it being the right thing and not be punished for it. And I want you to see Galatians 5.14. This is amazing look look what he says for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself spirit produced love through us watch this actually fulfills the law you're like paul have you lost your mind you've been you have been telling us for four chapters that we cannot fulfill the law and now you're saying love produced by the spirit fulfills the law he's like yep you want to know how you can fulfill the law don't try to fulfill the law (laughs) in your own flesh. Instead of trying with human effort to fulfill the law, to be right with God, you trust that Christ did it for you, and as you surrender yourself to him, he lives his life through you and produces love in you, which is the fulfillment of the law. It's a totally different way way to live. And Jesus said, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what he said? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two hang the law and the prophets. What is the fulfillment of the law? Love. God's love. And it's only possible through the Spirit. That should have been a slap in the face of the Judaizers, who were telling them that, hey, if you just get you a little bit of law in here, you'll be law-keeping. Paul's like, no, no, no. Don't try to fulfill the law. Trust Christ that He's done it for you and then His life produced in you is the fulfillment of the law. So that's amazing. And I want you to hear this paradox again because I'm telling you, this is is such a battle in the Christian life not to get this backwards. Listen to this. Here is the paradox again in its fullness. Living out the righteousness of the law does not result in a right relationship with God. Rather, being in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ results in living out the righteousness of the law. You got that? Got to get that down. Living out the righteousness of the law doesn't give you a relationship. Relationship produces this. The Christian, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and not through the dynamic of his or her own efforts to be righteous, manifests a life of increasing growth in righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Not about your effort. It's about your death and your surrender. So what are you going to do with freedom? What are you going to do with freedom? Here are the summons. Don't use it as an opportunity to cover up your sin, to use it as an opportunity for license, but through love serve one another because now, listen, you can. And Paul says, how? And he spends the next section from 26, from 25 on, sorry, 16 on to explain how. He wants to tell you how to serve one another through love and not to use your freedom as a license. And it's through the Holy Spirit, okay? So we're going to get there. But before we do, I want to give you an invitation tonight, okay? I want you to know this comes from a heart of love. And I'm I'm preaching to myself before I'm preaching to you, okay? I want us to leave behind low-level, excuse-driven, unbiblical notions of no progress in holiness. Put them behind. Because here's what I'm afraid happens so many times. I'm afraid in believing that we are justified by faith. Praise God. We are declared righteous in God's sight only by faith in Christ. He did that for us. And we know we will have the presence of sin until we are glorified with Him, which He also bought for us. So we say, guess I'm not going to advance that much in holiness. And I want us to be the people who say, He not only bought for me my justification, He not only bought for me my eternity, He bought for me the power to live a holy life. That's just a forgotten part of what Jesus has bought for us in His death. He bought for us the ability to live a holy life, not perfectly, but genuinely. I am totally aware that the Bible clearly says we will not be free from the presence of sin until we're in his presence. 1 John 3, 1 to 2 says, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. I believe it. I believe that. The Bible teaches that. But listen, the Bible also clearly teaches that God has given us his spirit so that we might live holy lives. Not perfectly, but yes, sincerely. So I want to ask us to put any unbiblical notions behind us. And I want us to say, God, if you've empowered me to live a holy life, then I want to run after you. I want to throw off every weight. I want to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. I want to set my eyes on Jesus, and I want to run after you because you've given me the power to do that. I am not content to conform to cultural Christianity, where you can claim Christ and be no different. I am not content with that. I have been changed radically, and I want that change to be shown in my life. God, now's the time. I want to invite us to that. And now Paul says, how? How? Well, here's a command and a promise. Look what he says in Galatians five sixteen. He says, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I want to tell you, I think that's the key to the entire Christian life. You get that verse right there, right. That's the key to the entire Christian life. Let's say it again. Let's just say it together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This means, it's a present imperative active, it means the continual ordering, the habitual putting everything in my life and behavior by the Spirit. And here's the promise, he says, if you do that, you will not carry out or gratify the desires of the flesh. Does that sound like the key to the whole Christian life? Listen. Evil impulses and passions and desires are puffing up from my indwelling sin nature like smoke puffing out of a chimney from a fire constantly. And there is one way to not carry them into action. He says, by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. That's the only way. Now here's what I want to do. I I think that's the key to the whole Christian life. So I'd like to take that verse and just squeeze all the juice out of it we can get and just spray it all over ourselves and make sure we get to as much to the bottom of it as we can, all right? So I got four things I want you to write down about how. How do we walk by the Spirit, or what what does that mean? Here's number one. Walking in the Spirit or walking by the Spirit is possible because we live in the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is possible because we live in the Spirit. Now, I love how Paul never gets an imperative before he gives us an indicative. You like, huh, say, huh, huh? Paul doesn't want to give us a command before he tells us why it's possible. You can walk by the Spirit because you live in the Spirit. Now, Christian, listen to this. I'm going to tell you what you were. Lost person, if you're here tonight, I'm going to tell you what you still are. All right? We were not just bad, we were dead. Amen? You weren't just bad, you were dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And we were dead in our transgressions and sins, in which we once walked. According to the prince of the power of the air, the course of this world, the spirit that is now operative in the sons of disobedience we were dead and listen the spirit of god through the word of god made us alive so that he might bring us to faith in christ that's how you got saved listen to this in john 6:63 6, this is jesus talking about the spirit it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and are life Somewhere along the way, maybe you were listening to a sermon, maybe you were, somebody was sharing the gospel with you, maybe you were reading the Bible, maybe you were thinking about something that, the word that was preached to you, and all of a sudden the Spirit comes in and life happens and He brings you to faith in Christ. And since then, your entire Christian life has been in the Spirit. Your Christian life is owing to the Spirit and it's in the Spirit because the Spirit is the sphere in which we live as Christians. And Paul says this, look, if that's how you started the Christian life, that's how you go on in the Christian life. This is what the Galatians just couldn't get. Listen to what Galatians 3.3 3 says. Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you start with the Spirit, but now you're going on by your own efforts? How does that work? GBC, listen. If we started by the Spirit, we're going on by the Spirit. We can walk by the Spirit because we live in the Spirit. Amen? Here's number two. Walking by the Spirit is the opposite of dependence upon self. Walking by the Spirit is the opposite of depending upon yourself. Walking by the Spirit means depending upon Him to live the life of Christ through you. It is surrendering yourself to be led by the Spirit. This is the exact opposite of trying to live righteously under the law and earn it. It's the exact opposite, which is why Paul says this in Galatians 5.18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Meaning, life in the Spirit is the exact opposite of being under the law. It's two separate ways to live. Listen to this quote, the Galatians, this, this might help you bring this home, bring this down to earth, the Galatians were still trying to live Christian lives, but they were going about it in the wrong way, with the result that they were failing. The entrance of these new factors, like dependence upon the law, meant that the spirit had no opportunity to minister to their spiritual lives. Listen to this, I love this little image. The mechanical setup of spiritual machinery, which God had installed, had become ineffective by reason of the monkey wrench of self-dependence, which the Galatians had thrown into it. God put spiritual machinery, live by the Spirit, they threw a monkey wrench of self-dependence and it went, you ever been in front of a breaker box and maybe, oh, everything's working good, let me just adjust that slightly, and then, that's their spiritual life. Self-dependence doesn't mix with dependence upon the Spirit. This is why Paul contrasts works of the flesh with fruit of the Spirit. Did you notice that in the passage? Listen to Galatians 5.19 and then Galatians 5.22. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, or the works of the flesh are evident. But now listen to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit, you see the difference? If you want to try to work in your flesh under the law, the only thing your flesh is going to give you is that catalog of sins we're about to read about in just a second. But the fruit of the Spirit works totally differently because it's not about your work. It's about your dependent connection to the vine. Now, now, let me just remind you. In John chapter 15, the command is not to bear fruit. (laughs) The command is what? Abide. Remain. remain in me, abide in me. Listen to John 14, uh, John 15, 4-5. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Fruit bearing is not about your work. Fruit bearing is about your dependence so that he works in you. Totally different. The Holy Spirit has given the believer a new nature, and the sweet influences of that nature are constantly permeating the activities of of the believer's will as the believer keeps himself yielded to the Spirit. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, great. I understand fruit-bearing, works of the law, two totally separate things, but help me out here. How do I walk by the Spirit? How do I walk in dependence upon the Spirit? Well, I want you to write down two words right here, okay? Two words I want you to take with you. Walking is, this is a great illustration. I love that Paul used this word. It's almost like he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Okay, walking is the perfect word because walking is something we do commonly and continually. Commonly and continually. You say, walking is a common action that you have to take and you do it all the time. Okay, everybody, I think everybody here walks, okay? Okay. Now listen, how do you walk by the Spirit? It is the continual use of the common means of grace. I'm going to say that again. It is the continual use of the common means of grace. You say, what are you talking about? Walking in dependence on the Spirit is the habitual use of the regular means of grace He's given us, through which He bears fruit. Listen to this quote, and it'll help you understand what I mean by common means of grace. The Spirit, J.I. Packer says, works through means, through the objective or common means of grace, namely biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship in the Lord's Supper, and with them through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change, namely thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what's in one's heart with others, and weighing any response they make. Now listen, We often think of the Spirit of God and His work like these ecstatic gifts or these phenomenological experiences. Oh, He was like slain in the Spirit. The Spirit works through common means of grace. Listen to what J.I. Packer continues. He said, The Spirit shows His power in us not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. Habit-forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of them are habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. You say, is that biblical? I'm going to give you one example. When Paul talks about what it is to be controlled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, you can probably quote this verse. Here's what he says. Don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But what? Be filled with the Spirit. This is not complicated. Paul says, do you want the Spirit to control you? Just think about how wine controls you. If you drink a lot of wine, you're going to get drunk. And when you get drunk, that wine starts to control you. He says, don't do that. But here's a principle. Do you want to get controlled by the Spirit? Drink a lot of the Spirit. Help me out, Paul. Uh, where do I drink a lot of the Spirit again? Well, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to show you Paul uses the same word, filled, plerōō here in Colossians 1, and I think this is an example of the means of grace by which the Spirit works. Listen to Colossians 1, 9 and 10. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now stop right there. The word filled Plero'o is the same word that you find in Ephesians 5.18. Filled with the Spirit, here it's filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Question, do I find the will of God, the knowledge of His will by going, ah. Is that how I find it? Where do I find it? What you, Cassie, you just said it. In His word. In His word. Now, do you see what Paul's doing here? If you get filled and controlled with the knowledge of His will from His Word, that's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Because where does the Spirit work? Here. Here. If you get filled with the knowledge of His will in His Word, that is being filled with the Spirit, because this is the means of grace He uses in your life. One of them. Which is why He says, watch this, watch what He keeps saying here. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. that sound familiar? Watch this. Fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see this connection here? Filled with the Spirit. How do I do that? Filled with the knowledge of His will. How do I walk by the Spirit? Hello. If I'm filled with that word in my life on a consistent, continual basis, I will be filled with the Spirit, and in dependence on Him, He will bear His fruit in my life. Now let me ask you a question. We can say, we got that, we understand that, are we applying that? It's one thing to see the truth, it's another thing to live it, right? I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you, listen, listen. I'm asking myself these questions as much as I'm asking you, but if we don't apply this, we're wasting our time. So listen, how much importance do you place on reading the Word and praying in comparison to the other things you do? How much importance? If this is how the the Spirit is going to bear fruit in our lives and this is how we walk by the Spirit by using the means of grace He's given us, let's ask a question. How much are we using them? How much emphasis do we put on gathering with God's people so that we can be deeply known and have the Word ministered to us? If somebody were to look objectively at our lives, what would they conclude is important to us? And listen, I promise, I promise, this is me looking at me, but I want you to look at you because God wants us to walk by the Spirit, so if we're not making use of the common means of grace, Let's do it. Today marks the day. Okay. So, that's number two. Number three. Walking by the Spirit necessarily involves conflict. Walking by the Spirit necessarily involves conflict. Lest we, say, or lest we think that walking by the Spirit means that we will be frolicking downhill with the wind in our hair, Paul says... No, actually it's a war. Listen to Galatians 5, 17. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit, and the spirit is against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. I want to tell you, before you were a Christian, you had zero governor on your life. There was no war in your life before you were a Christian. I got my good friend Phil right here. I could ask him, was there any governor on your sin before you were a Christian? Any war in your life? Probably not, right? You can sin however you wanted to. Has there been a war in your life ever since, though, when you got saved? Amen. Is there, one, no, there was no governor in our lives when we were just walking. It was just nothing but flesh. It was 100% flesh. But then you came to faith in Christ, and he gave you the Holy Spirit, and watch what started to happen. A shot fired, and a war started. And there's been a war ever since. And it's not mainly on the level of your actions. It's mainly on the level of your desires before you even get to action. A guy with the last name Burton said The flesh opposes the spirit so that men may not do what they will in accordance with the mind of the spirit. And the spirit opposes the flesh that they may not do what they will after the flesh. Watch this. Does the man choose evil? The spirit opposes him. Does he choose good? The flesh hinders him. It's a war. And certainly this is why Paul wrote Romans 7:21. Listen to this. I find then the principle that evil is present in, present in me the one who wants to do good. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> He's like, "Yep. Evil is present in me. I want to do good, but every time every time I'm like, yes, spirit, I have this desire. It's like yeah. Amen. This is a war. So I want to safeguard us from a couple of errors here. Number one is the error that life will be easy. It won't. Praise God for eternity with Jesus. But when you signed up to be a Christian, you signed up for a war. So this is not peacetime. This is wartime. Not against other people, but against me. I mean me against me and you against you. Here's the second thing. If it is a war, then the action that's needed is not passive. The action that is needed is violent. Look at Galatians 5:24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Does that sound like a passive action? It's interesting if you compare this passage with Galatians 2.20, which says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Watch this. When you came to faith in Christ, you were united in his death, and you were united in his life, such that his death is your death, and his life is your life. Whatever he died to, you died to, and whatever he lives to, you live to which is why Paul says in Romans 6, 10, and 11, listen to this, and the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's my identity. The power of sin when I came to Christ was broken in my life because Jesus died to sin and he lives to God, and that's my identity because I was united with him. Now, Paul says, if that's who you truly are, make that practical in your life by not surrendering your members to sin. Say, that's who I really am. I'm dead to sin, so don't be used for sin. Which is why he says in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's what's interesting, though, in the passage in Galatians 5. Galatians 2 20 says, I have been crucified. That's passive. I have been crucified. Somebody crucified me. Galatians 5 makes us the executioner. Those who are in Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now now listen. Whenever we came to faith in Christ, it was as if we were taking the nails and banging them into our old man to put him up on that cross. And the war of the Christian life is to not let him down. because he showed enough wants to get off. The war of the Christian life is not letting him off the cross. John Stott put it this way, we must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and nail it to the cross. Now listen, being crucified was a painful way to die. And how many of you know that to deny your flesh will often be painful? Keeping that man upon that cross sometimes is painful, isn't it? Especially when you've been wronged. And all your flesh wants to do is come back at that person. Ooh, it would feel so good, wouldn't it? Painful. It's also gradual. Crucifixion normally didn't kill somebody very quickly. Took a while. That old man on that cross has a mortal wound. He's in the rigors of death. And he sure enough wants to get off that cross and get back on my back. Do you know a Christian is somebody who is dead set on leaving him there until he expires? I love the way that John Brown put it. He said, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there till it expires. By the Spirit, I won't let you get off that cross. And you say, how do you do that? I mean, practically, it sounds great, but how do you do it? Paul helps us out. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, listen to this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You want to know how you don't let him off the cross? Don't give him any chance. Suffocate him. Some of us are making opportunity for the flesh in the things we look at, in the grudges that we hold, in the ways that we assume about other people, in the things that we listen to. We're making provision for the flesh. And Paul says, this is violent You don't give it an opportunity because when it gets an opportunity, I promise you, and you know this by experience, your flesh will grab that opportunity and turn it against you, won't it? It's so quick. And I'm not saying we're going to do this perfectly, but we've got to be the people that say, I'll cut my hand off and gouge my eye out in order to make sure that I'm not giving my flesh an opportunity to co-opt opportunities against me. So, whatever I got to remove from my life, whatever I've got to do, whatever it takes, Lord, I'm not going to give my flesh an opportunity against me. There's a lot more we could say about that, but here's the last one. Walking by the Spirit is evident. Walking by the Spirit is evident. I want you to know it's not hard to recognize somebody who walks by the Spirit versus somebody who walks in the flesh. Amen? It ain't hard. This is not hard. There's no need to be confused here. It seems like the Galatians were a little bit confused. So Paul says, let me help you out. The deeds of the flesh are evident, meaning it's not confusing when somebody's walking in the flesh, because here's what their life looks like. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Paul divides these into four categories. We're not going to look at every one of them. The four categories are you've got sexual immorality or sexual sin, where he says sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior. You've got religious, idolatry, and witchcraft you've got relational issues like hostility strife jealousy and the like and you've got issues of temperance like drunkenness and carousing now I want you to know this this list is not it's not comprehensive because Paul says look he says and things like these so I'm not giving you a comprehensive list of like so if you don't see these sins in your life you're good no okay wait a second that's not what he's saying it's not a comprehensive list but here's what he is saying. These desires and actions are clear evidence of the flesh and not walking in the spirit. Watch this. So much so that if these are the pattern of your life, Paul says you don't have the spirit at all. He says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If the pattern of your life looks like that, you are not a kingdom citizen. And just to make Sure, we understand that. He says in Galatians 6, 8, for the one who sows to his flesh will from from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you spend your life sowing to the flesh, you don't know God. I was talking to a parent recently, um, not here, but who was very concerned about child and the child was asked hey did, aren't, aren't you a Christian and the answer was yes I, I prayed I prayed the prayer back when I was a kid and ever since then there has been nothing in their life to even remotely suggest that this person is a Christian and I want to tell you our churches are filled with people like that there's no evidence that they ever were born again, or have been led by the Spirit. They made this one quote unquote decision in their life earlier, sometime back, and whenever they say, are you a Christian, when they're challenged, oh yeah, yeah, I did that already. No, 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 you didn't do that already if your life looks like that. And Paul's concerned, frankly, He's concerned about the Galatians, and did you notice that he put a special emphasis on the third category, the relational issues? Listen to, I mean, he's got some stuff in the other categories, but now listen to all he puts in this category. He says, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. I think he puts a special emphasis right there because the Galatians, with this reintroduction of dependence on the law, their flesh was co-opting that striving for human human merit into pride, where they started competing with each other. You know what starts happening when you start competing with with other people in the church? Dissensions, factions, envy, selfishness, outbursts of anger, jealousy, etc. Paul said in Galatians 5:15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. He says in verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. You, you see his focus? You guys have set up the law again, like you got to depend on that to be righteous. And you know what your flesh has done? It's used it as an opportunity to make you prideful. And in your pride, now you're fighting If you've read Mere Christianity, you probably know this quote by C.S. Lewis, but he says, listen to this, This is take this away with you, this is so good. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Is that true? Now listen to what he says. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. If you're not competing with somebody, pride's gone. And I want to tell you, competition has no place in the church of God. We're not competing. Because we are on the same level of dependence upon the Spirit, or otherwise we're not walking by the Spirit. And there's there's nothing I'm gaining over you or you're gaining over me. And I want you, when you think the first moment where you think, you know, that person's getting getting honored a little bit more for what they're doing in the church, or this, or that, or the other, and then competition starts to rise up, you need to say, that's not from the Spirit. Can't be from the Spirit. Put it to death. But just as evident as a life given to the flesh is a life given to the Spirit, because he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's the exact opposite of the list he gave us that the flesh produces. You see, they're in opposition. And he says there's no... Against such things there is no law, because when you walk by the Spirit, what the Spirit is going to produce in your life is lawful. It's the fulfillment of the law. So here's, here's some questions. Here's some questions. When you look at these lists, what characterizes you more? And how do we need to repent and begin to walk by the Spirit? What difference would it make in your personal life in your family, in our church, in this community, if we were a church full of people walking by the Spirit? What are you going to do with freedom? Interestingly, at the end of the movie, if you've seen The Patriot, you know that Occam, the slave, gets past his 12 months of service. And at the Battle of Calpins, he's standing right by Donald Logue. Donald says... more than 12 months Occam says I'm here now of my own accord freedom didn't lead him to leave it led him to serve we're free brothers and sisters but let's not use our freedom to serve our flesh but to serve one another in love and you say how walk by the spirit let's pray Father thank you for your love for us Thank you for your word to us. We confess that so often we do not walk by the Spirit. So I pray, help us, Lord, to set aside all those things that would stand in the way of us, making priority for your word and priority for prayer and priority to be with your people and priority, Lord, to confess and priority to let the word be ministered to us. Lord, we don't want to let our freedom to become a license. I pray that the Spirit of God would be unleashed in our church and that your people would walk by the Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who may be here and do not know Christ. I pray that by your Spirit, you would begin their Christian life by opening them to taste and see for the first time that Jesus is good and that they are in desperate need of a Savior, and that He is the only way. Jesus, we give ourselves to you. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have questions about this message or Grace Bible Church, please contact us at info at gbclakeland.org or visit our website, gbclakeland.org. Thank you for listening.